Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Tech and Operations, where we like to talk about really cool things going on in the oil and gas industry, cool solutions for you and your operations, and ways that we can all improve what we are doing. So uh, we've got a very special guest today, Jesse. We've got um, a large amount of topics we could cover on optimization, on field-wide strategies, standardizations, um, performance improvements and how to achieve those. But I think, um, you know, we'll, we'll see where the, the conversation leads us. But I think first and foremost, uh, Jesse, tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, what you're doing now, um, and some of your history uh, in the oil and gas world. All right. Um, my name is Jesse Smith. I own a company called Optimal Production Solutions. I'm based out of Oklahoma. Uh, it's I just recently got it started up and um, looking forward to uh, getting out across different states and, and helping with the um, optimization of everything, basically plunger for right now. Uh, my what made you want to start it up though, Jesse? Uh, I see that there's a big need for yeah. not just the knowledge, but helping producers with things such as, hey, we collect this data, we're not doing anything with it, we're not mm -hmm. sure how to leverage it. To Classic problem. Bridging, bridging the gap, I guess, between your corporate engineering operations and those in the field and trying to get everybody on the same page. What I've mm -hmm. learned over the years is not only a lot of times are they not on the same page, they're not looking at things the same way in a sense of how this person optimizes wells versus how this person optimizes wells isn't the yep. same. And so to be able to leverage all that and get everybody going down the same path, it's important that they come together and establish this is how we produce, this is how we yeah. optimize and kind of give everybody, you know, a sense of kind of a central focus. Good, good. And your history? What have you been doing in the old field for so long? So I, all the way back in my early 20s, maybe even before that, I was aroused about while I was in college. I did the grunt work uh, whenever I did uh, oil and gas full time. I again, started out as a roustabout, went into being a lease operator, did that for probably four years, became a plunger technician is what it was called in the company I was in. And so I did that for about four years before I decided to kind of spread my wings and see about, I had some ideas for patents or plunger designs, things that I felt were missing in the plunger lineups of the various companies. And you patented so, some plungers. Well, I I guess I had the original concept and I worked with a company called Wellmaster Corporation. And That's we, so cool. We patented a uh, plunger they have called the Jetted Pad, which has yeah, yeah. aeration ports underneath the pads to help with uh, maintaining a seal through deviations and uh, inclinations in, in uh, horizontal wells. Um, we did a... Eagle bypass. Uh, a lot of, a yep. lot of the feedback we were getting was they like 
people like the fall velocity of a ball, ball and sleeve, but don't mm-hmm. like the two different components and then not being together. So while there's a lot of those out there, we had our own version of that. And then we did some other ones that weren't patented. Uh, one called the hollow point, which is yep. a hollow. Dude, that's crazy. Plunger. Jesse, I've, I've literally installed the plungers that you've worked on and well as I've operated. That's so cool. Like, I mean, you, you talking about, um, with well, the, the Eagle, right? Uh, yeah, the Eagle Bypass. Yeah, the Eagle Bypass. I've I've specifically remember installing that plunger, and that's really cool that you worked on that. Um, even the aeration one, I always thought I don't know what year that ended up coming out in. If it was like right when I started using plunger lift, but it was really cool to hear that sold by Wellmaster on like the the why behind it, and you're like, oh, that that does kind of make sense on why you'd want that. So that's I, I didn't realize we were talking to a living plunger legend. <laughs> Well, we did, you know, we collaborated. They had all the, you know, the investment and the engineering behind it. But the concepts were just something that I felt, you know, we needed. And a lot of other. Well, thanks for coming up with that stuff. Well, hopefully it helps. Uh, It doesn't help me anymore, I guess. But uh, (laughs) they're out there and and my name is also included on them. So cool. You know, it's something. Wow. All right. So you've got your hands on, you know, creation of even the, the type of plunger. Tell us about some of the experience, you know, after the, the plunger technician role, kind of spreading your wings, going into optimization. Talk to us a little about that, that phase. So once I kind of left the plunger manufacturing part of the industry, I went back into optimization and my job was mm-hmm. an optimization coordinator in the beginning. And basically that was tasked with being a liaison between, again, the corporate engineering part of the business with those in the field. And our first big win was in the Barnett Shale. And it basically entailed going out and kind of observing what, mm-hmm. how are we currently operating? What are our, what are our people know? You know, what's their, what's their skill set? What's their knowledge? And so we went in and started doing some analysis. I, I do a lot of echo meter analysis. I'm one mm-hmm. of those guys that showed the, uh, showed the personnel how to leverage that and what that data was telling us. And so our first big, big win was a 32 million a day increase uh, on about a total of probably 340 wells or so. That's outrageous. Cumulative. And so it, you know, we didn't make it through all all the wells, you know, before there was a investiture. But yeah, it was a big, it was a big win, and started taking that knowledge into other parts of the company, and you know, building off of that, and basically spreading a lot of knowledge, you know, and and leveraging the people we had. Uh, One of the things I think uh, producers suffer with the most is their really good people, the ones that really know their stuff, mm-hmm. don't really have an opportunity to do optimization, right? They're a, they're a capable set of people and therefore they're the first ones to get called when wells go down or when there's some type of a problem. Sure. And we eventually got it to where we had optimization personnel, that that was their job. They weren't pulled off to fill in for the lease operator. Field-based or, or centralized in an office in this scenario? We had both. So okay. I, I uh, supervised a team in Oklahoma City of subject matter experts. My uh, 
my background, of course, is in plungers, but we had mm-hmm. a ESP expert. We had a sure. rod lift expert and some other, you know, people that focused on on plungers. But then in the field, we didn't do it in every business unit, but we had people that they were on an optimization team. Their job mm-hmm. was to go out and make things better every day, do analysis, troubleshooting, things of that nature. In my opinion, it was it was very successful. Yeah. Okay. I think the first thing I want to hit you with is first, like, that's a lot. They've done a lot in your career. Like, that's amazing that you've gotten the exposure from the front line all the way to basically running teams that are doing, you know, large scale optimization. I think that's like what everyone is trying to do right now. They want optimization at scale. You hear that said by all your execs, we want to do optimization at scale. But when you get down to the front line, you find that like optimization doesn't feel like a priority. It's like, no, nah, I got to do this. I got to do this. And also, I don't really know how to do that optimization very well. So why is it something we always talk about, but like not necessarily do? Do you feel like there's a disconnect there? I think a lot of it has to do with, we know we're going to make X amount of production. We want to do that as with as few people as possible, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, Seems like, especially in the downturns, you lose people, but you don't get any back. You just split up that leftover mm-hmm. workload, you know, and, and everybody gets more to do. And so it's just getting through the day and, you know, I don't want to say putting out the fires when we're talking about yeah. Yes. Yeah. You know, doing all those all those tasks and making sure the daily production data is entered and wells that are down or back up. And mm-hmm. by the end of the day, you've, you've run out of time and you haven't actually got to go out and spend time with the well, you know, to understand what it needs or, mm-hmm. and, and that's where the, that's where the data piece comes in. Right. I mean, if we have cycle by cycle data, we should be utilizing that. And that is one of the things. So what do people need to start then? Because you find a lot of people, when you say cycle logs to them, some are like, yeah, we have our cycle logs in Signet and we have 20, the past 20 to look at. Mm-hmm. Or you have some people are like, look, we have nothing but just what's at the RTU going out and you know looking at rates and such. So you have uh, a wide scope here of, of where people are in their technology and, and use of it. What do people need? to start getting good at plunge lift optimization? What's the fundamentals there? In my opinion, it's going to be, if that information's available, we need to know how long in a cycle we're shut in for, Mm -hmm. what's our arrival velocity, how long we're after flowing for. And then those three components, as simple as it sounds, will tell us a lot about, you know, are we, are we headed in the right direction? And so when you look at it, when, when I would look at it from an optimization standpoint, and I hear, hey, we're shut in for 60 minutes. Plunger's coming up at 700 feet per minute. We're after flowing for 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. Afterflow is, in my opinion, nothing but a tattletale to you that the well has too much energy, right? So <laughs> we need to be more focused on if we have all this pinned up energy, why are we shutting it in so long for so long? I, I, I love that. I want to hit on that point. That is something I have worked with operators on, on like, it's such a clear indicator. If you have a very long build and you have a very long afterflow, we need to start challenging ourselves. Well, why is there such that 
such a long build. You know, if the plungers get in the bottom, right? I mean, that's a, a caveat there, but why? Why do we have that? So what you're saying is with this fundamental information, you can basically pinpoint where opportunities are to adjust your the way you're operating the plungers, right? Right. And and hmm. so we actually put together, didn't do it with all the artificial lip types, primarily on plunger, paggle, gapple, and made a scorecard of sorts. And that all those stems from the first thing Chesapeake had to do uh, is bring everybody together and say, this is how we operate. This is how mm-hmm. we optimize. These are the most important things. What we ultimately did was created a scorecard. So I love the idea because it doesn't matter, matter if you're a lease operator, doesn't matter if you're a manager, mm-hmm. you can go in and look at a set of wells, the overall wells in the company or down to a specific well or route and say, this is based on our criteria, yeah. how optimized we are. And to be able then to say, we're scoring really low in this area, and you can go in and look at what part of that scoring mechanism is suffering. So is it a mm-hmm. training issue? Is it a um, just a settings issue? Do we have the right tools in the hole? Because, you know, at the end of the day, that that's what makes the difference is understanding this is this is the exact tool that I need to run in this well. And it's funny, once you're not with a production company to say, here's the type of plunger you need to be running. And, you know, we used to get the, uh, that one's too expensive. You know, I'm not going to, okay. So what, how do we, how do we help if we're not going to get past, I don't want to spend a little extra money to yeah. get the right tool in the hole. Yeah. It's interesting. You started with alignment. Like how did you, you know, scale some optimization, right? You know, the scorecard piece, right? You had to line on like, what is good? How did you, get that alignment because I find that with the operators we're working with so many people no optimization is a problem. Yes, optimization is our biggest gap in our company, but there seems to be a lack of alignment in what to do about that gap. How do you get alignment? Well, we were fortunate in the sense that we had a couple of leaders that were set on getting this done that understood mm-hmm. the importance of alignment. So we took kind of our leaders in the field, whatever whatever artificial lift type we were talking about, we went to the field and each business unit and said, we need your best guy. Also, we need the engineers. And you bring together the engineers that kind of focus on that particular artificial lift type or in a particular area. And we roundtabled it. And yeah. uh, it went on, I mean, we I think we put three or four days into it. Everything from... One day it was, what do you focus on? If you're if you're an expert or you're the one in control of that well, what are the things that you're looking at when you pull something up on Signet? What are you mm-hmm. looking for? And then we wrote, you know, we recorded all those key attributes, and then from that point started to say, okay, well that's important to you. How important is it, right? And so that's where you kind of start to get the, you know, the weighting scale of which things are, are our first point of concern. And then they start to, you know, tail off after that. But yeah. it was really important to every, if everybody has a seat at the table, right? doesn't matter if you're a lease operator, you're a technician, you're an engineer, sure. you had some say so. 
It wasn't something that came out of the corporate office. This is what we've decided you're going to do, right? Everybody That's has a really good point. Yeah, it's almost like you have um, advocates at those different layers. You have an advocate for the operators. You have an advocate for the leads, the foremen, the engineers, and everyone can kind of align because you spoke with those key stakeholders. So that's I think that's really critical. Nice. And, and once that's developed, then you have something in place. It, you're going to get people that, oh, I don't like change. They can typically get over it. What, what's probably the most important thing is to have management Mm-hmm. that supports it and will push it. And, and, and you, you see it all, right? You see the ones that are like, hey, we're doing this. We spent a bunch of time and money to develop all this stuff. We're doing it versus mm-hmm. others that are like, hey, I just need you to make sure we're producing what we're supposed to be producing, right? So there's it, sure. it really makes a big impact when you have a push from upper management, middle management, you know, kind of down to a foreman level. Yeah. So now we're aligned. We got, you know, uh, stakeholders bought in. We have ideas and maybe some scorecarding that help us, you know, figure out uh, where the opportunity is. I I find that like there is a pretty wide gap in knowledge base in the field um, from your green pumper to your most experienced. How do you bridge that gap or or should you? Um, How do you get people to be educated in the best practices, the fundamentals starting there. And then I, I want to talk a little bit about like how that um, relates to doing remote optimization, but let's just talk on the field side first, education there. So once we can agree as a company that this is how we do things, then the other kind of big key component was we had people, and I was one of them early on, that went to the field. And typically what we looked at first was, who are your current technicians? Who are the people that are tasked with making optimization happen or, or, you know, they're in charge of all the plunger wells, for instance. So we did one-on-one training. I mean, we mm-hmm. it was get in the vehicle, ride with them. And, you know, there, there's some people who say, ah, oh, sounds, sounds like a big, you know, draw on time, money. But I found it most effective because you're finding out what people know as a subject matter expert, if people want to call themselves that, then you can say, okay, I recognize we need help mm-hmm. with this. We need help with that. And then I think one of the most important things is you're training them in their environment where, you know, you're not sending them away to school somewhere. This is hands-on. I can apply this every day. I know these wells. And so you start with the technicians and as you kind of get them, what do you want to call spun up, you know, and they're they're kind of getting in the rhythm and making things happen. You go to the next one and the next one. And at some point, you're kind of, it's a, it's a train the trainer type of mentality. But we also went in and got in with those lease operators. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> one of the things I think is we all fall victim to is we lose people in the oil and gas industry. We replace them with the folks underneath them, right? Everybody moves up. And if I'm a lease operator during the Eagleford boom, you know, everything's going crazy. One day I'm a lease operator. The next day I'm a foreman. Yes. Whatever habits I picked up, or maybe it was, I, I found something that worked on these wells. 
So it must work, right? It worked for me. I'm going to do it that way. Mm. I'm also, as a foreman now, going to teach all the guys that come in underneath me to do the same thing. Yes. So, and it's not that they were wrong, it, but we need a foundation, right? This mm -hmm. is how we, this is how we operate. Yes, there's going to be one-off instances, but we need the companies to come together, decide what it is. And I would I call it, you know, just establish your methodology. How are you mm -hmm. going to do this? Because at that point, everyone's going to be on the same page when somebody like myself or somebody within their company starts going around and teaching people, this mm -hmm. is how we're going to do it. Yeah. You, you really have to spread um, the standards and the standards need to be aligned upon because what you're saying there on, on different foremen or, or leads having different methods, they've seen work for them in the past on their wells and, and their experience. Uh, typically it's trial and error based and it, it may not be, um, you know, a philosophy that applies to all wells. It may have been a niche um, situation. It may have been just um, the experience they, they gathered and it may not have been long enough to really see it all. Um, and I think, you know, I think people are receptive to receiving that training. Like, do you, do you find resistance in, in the education side or is that kind of like uh, an easier thing to do, you know, educating people? I think whenever we first started it, it was, uh, you had some people that liked the idea. A lot mm -hmm. of people that took the kind of standpoint of, oh, I've got somebody coming in here telling me how to do my job. Right. But as the industries kind of come into the optimization idea, right, it's a big, big key word that seems to come up and up and up. You know, I think now people are open to the idea of, hey, by me bringing in somebody that mm -hmm. can teach us how to do things differently, I don't look bad. You know, what I'm actually going to do is increase production. I'm going to save money, things of that mm -hmm. nature. And we're all going to be better for having done it. I don't, um, I haven't met just a whole lot of resistance. I do think that there's, there's companies that assume they have it figured out and, and they might, you know, that, Hey, you got a good system. You got a good program because how many people did they have doing that trial and error? Because sure. that's kind of how I came up through the field and my views on it now are let's not have our folks do three or four or five years to learn what we already learned. Mm -hmm. Let's teach them. Let's accelerate that. And you know, yeah. you're, you're investing in your people. Yeah. There is an acceleration of knowledge. And, um, one thought on just companies perceive they're doing it the best way or the right way. Um, most operators we talk with, uh, at the EMP level, not the actual field level operators, Everyone says that they're pretty much the best. I, I haven't met many that are willing to acknowledge that like, yeah, you know, I think we've got, um, you know, a, a lot of gaps that need addressing. So what the reality of it is, if everyone thinks they're the best, about 90% of them are lying to, to themselves. And like, there has to be a recognition of like, we do have issues. So, so is there a way to to, you know, if we look at your company, like to come in and be like, you know, is there an evaluation we can do on, on your well set and say like, here's the opportunity of it? Because I feel like there's, there's something around like your, your grading scale you're talking about there. And then for, for your company to come in and be like, look, we'll take 500 wells, we'll grade them on our scale. And then we're going to, you know, quantify some 
opportunity value. Is, is that something that, that y'all have the uh, ability to do or is that a step that you do with your company? Yeah, so I, I think kind of the way I've approached it is after the initial talks, you know, is, is to get an opportunity to come in and do an evaluation mm-hmm. and look at a very small subset of wells, maybe a specific play or maybe they're only in, in the one play. Sure. Take a look at those production settings, how we're set up for plunger, paggle, gapple. Mm-hmm. And with the knowledge that I have throughout the you know different various business units and as well as plays and also just mm-hmm. experiences, I think I can help you. You know, here's what yeah. I'm seeing. Spend some time with their folks in the field, get a little feedback. What do they feel like they're missing? Do they feel like they need more training? Uh, use of analysis equipment? Are they running something like an echo meter? You know, is there any of that going on? And then for me, it would be a smaller set of wells and say, let's take these wells. Let's use it, the methodology that I have or, you know, help them develop their own. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, yeah, like you said, put them through the kind of the scoring system. I don't have a I don't have like a digital, you know, system set up or anything like that. Uh, I'm not tech savvy enough for that. <laughs> Can't do Excel, but, um, <laughs> but, you know, go ahead and try a small group sure. of wells. Do we see an increase? Um, if, you know, we don't see an increase, is there still value in it? And, and I think by contracting, with my company, you know, I'm obviously they can have my methodology, what we've created over the years. They can have the grading system as far as how that works. If they want to do their own, I can help them get everybody together and let's sit down and talk about it and create a methodology Mm -hmm. for them. But I think I'd kind of aim small, miss small in a sense of let's take a look at some wells in an area that you're concerned about. Let's look at Mm -hmm. how they're operating. Maybe we do some analysis on them. Because while we talked earlier about, oh, shut-in time's important or afterflow's important, uh, there's a lot of things that happen during those times that we need mm-hmm. to be aware of. And typically, we pick that up through through the analysis part. Yeah. Well, I can tell you, I haven't worked with a company yet, uh, either at the at, you know working for an RMP or, or working uh, at a tech co supporting an EMP that has it figured out. So uh, I would say your your services are needed in every business I have walked into. So uh, for sure, the, um, you know, getting in, starting small, evaluating and, and pointing out the opportunities is, is a really big piece there. Um, so we touched on the education at the field level, but what I've also found um, whenever you have something remote, uh, an, an OCC, an operations control center, working on wells remotely, you, you find conflict in pumpers and those in the OCC where it's like, look, this is my well, this is my territory, this is my you know, baby that I was working on and you, know, you loaded it up last week because you changed the closed flow rate. You know, I'm not going to let you touch another one of my wells. And I know that maybe on the extreme side of emotions, but um, I find it to be territorial. So when you're talking about control centers and, and remote optimization, how do you bridge this um, territory and this communication gap between field and remote optimization? Because there's so much, let's talk, let's talk first on why OCCs are critical. There's so much benefit to having centralized focus 
on a singular problem like plunger lift optimization because remotely i can go in and i can you know optimize 20 wells in a day where i know you couldn't drive to 20 if you spent five minutes on each one of them you know you just couldn't do it so there's huge value in remote optimization but how do you bridge the gap field and remote so i really think it all comes back to you know getting everyone aligned when we mm -hmm. did our uh workshops where we established our methodologies, there was representation from the OCC or, you know, whatever anybody calls it, they had a seat at the table as well. We had lease operators that had a seat at the table. So it was something that was developed that now everybody agrees on. And I think in the beginning, when we're going to start doing some remote optimization, it's a matter of don't go in and make big changes right? Let's keep it mm -hmm. small. And you have different comfort levels. We have business units. I think that, hey, do whatever you want. You know, that's just one more thing I don't have to do today. As long as we're sure. aligned on what we're trying to do or, hey, I don't think my people are quite ready for someone to be in there tinkering with their wells. So typically how that would start was if you have an idea, you see something that needs to be changed on a well, call the LO send a message or something and say, sure. hey, what do you think about doing this? I think it's going to help matters or I noticed that production's down here. Here's why I think it's down. And, hmm. you know, you got to kind of, but that, that all goes back to management being behind it, you know, and helping push it. We're going to do this. Yeah. Let's work together. Uh, and, you know, it really helps if everybody's aligned from the very beginning. <clears throat> it sounds like there's a, a common thread here, which is the root of getting to scaled optimization takes managerial buy-in and alignment and driving, um, you know, these initiatives from uh, a level of leadership. So that is something I don't know if um, I've seen done very well, but I, I like how, you know, you kind of phrase that with bring, bring stakeholders to the table, you know, get everyone aligned on the problem and uh that alignment and just discussion and uh yeah i don't need to rehash everything you said but the way you outlined it i think would be for those listening if you're trying to have some sort of scaled optimization follow jesse's kind of alignment process there and i think that's that's a great first step to reaching what everyone's trying to get to which is scaled optimization so yeah i'm glad you outlined that you have to um <clears throat> You have to do things kind of across the board whenever you're developing the methodologies. Mm -hmm. The most important part is when we're done, everybody agrees, right? Nobody has anything that hadn't been put out on the table. And I would, I would caution folks to avoid the pitfalls of um, trying to bend your rules around what you're going to do based off of one-off scenarios. Well, I've mm. got this one well that mm. does this or it does that. We don't derail the other 90 something percent of the wells that that don't have that issue and also it's probably an opportunity to do some analysis on those particular wells that do their own thing and they're different than the rest because there could very well be something wrong with them that is such a good point you find people trying to push for that 100 percent solution and that just either isn't achievable or takes too much time to get to so there is almost that you know Pareto rule of like let's just focus on the eighty percent, right? Or sorry, the the 
the percentage we we know we can you know have accurate work done on and the other 20 percent, let's just leave that for whatever manual um, work that needs to happen you mentioned pitfalls what else did you learn in going through this because i think that's a really critical one to share was there any others that you saw that um, you want to share with uh with us well i would say that especially when we're out doing the work in the field um, you know it'd be really easy for somebody that has a lot of experience to say, we're going to go in and change this, change this, change this, you know, and then it works or it doesn't work. But instead, what we tried to do was say, whoever we were training, right, whoever was the stakeholder in the field, hey, what do you think about doing this? Do you want to try mm -hmm. that? Here's what I think you'll get out of that if, you know, if you do it, if you change it. And that gives you an opportunity to build a little success. And in fact, that if you actually get somebody that's excited, right? That all of a sudden dying to go to work the next morning because they increased, you know, production by 20 or 30% on a well, then all of a sudden they become a champion for the cause, right? They're going to, they're going to talk to the folks that you don't have a relationship with, right? Cause you're, you're from a different place, mm -hmm. you're from corporate, but they start to become the go-to people that their peers will be like, Hey, what do you, you know, you had some success. What do you think about this one? I mm -hmm. think it, I think it all centers around buy-in. You got to take a, take enough time to create some believers, you know, so like let them try, let them do it themselves, have some success and then build yeah. momentum from that. Yeah. Uh, I think, you know, if I look at the last piece I want to cover, it's a bigger piece. It's, it's like, um, Plunge lift is a part of a system and the system is operations and operations is made up of lots of groups of people, construction and automation and measurement and field operators and optimizers and foremans and processes and paperwork and stuff. What I find in plunge lift optimization is so much is it feels a little bit out of control from just the set point side. You can't just adjust a set point and get a plunger to run perfectly. There's like, you know, is the tubing pressure higher than the casing pressure? during offside, you probably have a measurement uh, or uh, issue on your um, pressure sensors. Is your motor valve sticking? Um, you know, is uh, your, your like, do you have a downhole standing valve on a well that's having dry trips? You know, there's, there seems to be, um, it seems to be so much ingrained into the system of operations. So how do you align on like the things that have to happen to set plunger lift wells up for success? Like, accurate measurement. Um, say you have a gas meter um, that isn't calibrated and it's never going to zero during the off cycle or you have a, a valve leak and it's just kind of, you know, passing by like a set point's not going to change that. So how does that factor into optimization and, and what, what y'all had to do with it? We were fortunate enough that the team I had, we had people that just caught things like that, right? Like, sure. Because we typically were notified when there was a well that was acting up or something. And, and those are things that they looked for as mm -hmm. far as this well's status is currently shut in for plunger drop. And we still have a 100 MCF a day flow rate or something right. like that. And, and typically now we start to recognize why there's a problem. Um, I think some of that could probably be done through the data side. You know, just I think, again, mm -hmm. not a data guy as far as knowing how to do all this. 
but if my status shows shut and I have a flow rate, is that acceptable? Should it flag on that? And the, and I don't want to get off track, but one of the things when I say the flag, um, I would caution people if they are doing the support center, don't do the deal where you say, if you dream it, we can build it. Because what you get as an end result is thousands of flags mm. that people are now ignoring, alarms going mm. off that people are ignoring, a cluttered up system, and that just bogs everybody down. I yeah. think going back to the methodology piece and going back to everybody being aligned is, hey, these are the things that from an optimization standpoint, we're really focused on, you know, then we keep it clean. People can handle more wells, things of that nature. But going back to, I, I'm not really for sure that I have a good answer for you as far as, you know, the, the things that, for instance, like the flow rate, you know, occurring while the, while the well is, is shut in. I, I think we have to train people good enough to say, you know, that's not right. Or it's back to the education piece. Yeah. I, I think that, you know, repetitive motion is probably, you know, more and more experience um, mm -hmm. is probably key in allowing people the time to do that. You know, if I go out and train somebody on an analyzer and I come back two weeks later, well, they didn't get a chance to do any more analysis because they had to relief pump these wells or go do this or that. They're not any further ahead. You know, we have to carve out mm -hmm. time for them to specifically spend on optimization, on the analysis piece. And I think while while sometimes management will be like, oh, we can't really afford to have this guy off doing that type of stuff. It's it's actually going to pay dividends to the company from a sure. production increase, especially when you get into dry gas assets, especially when they're sensitive to pressure drops and things. Mm -hmm. You go in there and you take some of that pressure off the well. It's, you know, it, it pays big, but we have yeah. to give people the opportunity to learn and to spend some time doing that. Mm-hmm. One thing uh, going back to OCCs I found to be super valuable was you have, let's just say, an educated field, you have remote optimization, but there almost needed to be um, specialists in the field because you mentioned analyzers like Echometer and such. And what we had was, I think it was about four, we'll call them just uh, you know, field specialists that were uh, for artificial lift and whether it was rod pump or plunger lift for those that were just behaving abnormally to where set points weren't doing it, a plunger change wasn't doing it, um, you know, chemical flushes weren't doing it. It was analyzed, right, by someone who was a specialist and they found holes in tubings. They you know, identified tight spots in the tubing. And I find so often you'll sit there and have a well falling off in rate and becoming super unreliable. But like, I have no idea what's going on. But there's solutions out there to figure out why it's behaving that way. But I find it's so late to the game to bring in that type of analysis. Uh, so did you find having like some field specialists that were like specialized in troubleshooting or did you have everyone doing that? Uh, I think for the most part, we had people that specialized in 
you know, certain things. I, I know my team, it was like that, but in the field, they did a lot of the same. You may have a couple of guys that were just, you know, jack of all trades and pretty good sure. at it. But I think if we're to the point where it's out of the lease operator's hands and the, the OCC or whatever they call it is not able to do anything with it, I think you need somebody that really truly understands the analysis piece. And mm-hmm. to that point, um, one of the things I think is important is pattern recognition. We started started into that a year or two ago as far as, you know, you listen for key terms like, well, every that, that plunger will run for a week and then stop or it's going to go mm-hmm. for three days and stop. Chances are, if it's a pattern, we're causing it and it's mm. probably in your control settings. Mm. So that's one of the things that we were training some of the people that were in that OCC and they started recognizing, hey, this thing's got a pattern. They weren't sure what to do with it yet, right? But they knew there was something wrong. They knew it was a pattern. Mm-hmm. So let's have a discussion and reach out to one of the subject matter experts. And I, yeah, you know, I, I like I like that. If there's a pattern, it's probably human caused because I've seen it where it may be even at the cycle level where you have a short cycle and then a long cycle and a short cycle and a long cycle probably a setting or to your point it's like yeah every three days x happens it's like probably a, a set point so that's really it's a really good observation and then in knowing that if, if you do have a pattern then you know it's human caused by a set point it, it's very clear that like a set point should should be able to bring stability to this it's great i think the kind of the overall view of how i like to do things as far as again set up that methodology, have your scoring mechanisms and things like that. It's really important that as a company, we land on this is how we operate. Because if I'm an engineer and I'm supposed to meet certain production numbers on a given Mm -hmm. well, and it's not meeting those numbers, if we all agree on how things are supposed to be operated, as far as our system needs to be running like this, their first look at is, are we running properly? Well, mm-hmm. that takes the rest of the digging out of the way as far as, you know, we got to figure out what setting is wrong. If we're running like we're supposed to be running, now as an engineer, I know that I have a different problem. I've got, you know, whether it's track interference, I need to redesign the system, uh, mm-hmm. have some type of blockage, rock problem, whatever it may be. But we know because we all agree on how to do it, that it's not the way that we're operating the system itself with control mm-hmm. settings. And I think that's important, especially from a time management perspective. You don't want people to have to go chase down what it could be. We have a rogue setting or we had somebody come in and pump wells over the weekend and they changed a bunch of things, you know. If everyone's on the same page and everyone's looking for the same things, it's a lot easier to rule those out. Absolutely. Yeah, so I guess for optimal it's, is it optimalproduction.com is your website or and, and name of your company is, is optimal production, right? Yeah. So the name of the company is optimal production solutions, solutions. and the website, and it's not completely where we want it yet. <laughs> and most of that's my fault. So it's hard to get those do- domain names. <laughs> yeah. So it's uh, optimal-production.com. 
Okay. Yeah. So with, with your company, I, I mean, what I see here, the, the value that, that you provide uh, is a knowledge base that has gone through the trials, gone through the failures, learned what works, learned what doesn't work, has gone through um, scaled optimization, which is a lot what a lot of people are looking for and have learned how to save basically people five years to get to a point where, where they're at where you were able to get to in, in your career. So, um, yeah, there's, there's massive value in, you know, a, a company reaching out to, to Jesse Smith here and, and kind of talking with him about, um, how he can come plug into, to your company and, and be, um, you know, a source for driving the, the right change for your optimization solution. Cause I think we can all agree on like optimization is a problem in oil and gas, especially at $7 an MCF and a hundred dollars a barrel. This is like, prime time for for really kind of um, you know, getting that extra one or two or three percent out of a field. So huge opportunity here. So Jesse, is there anything you want to kind of close on here with the uh, the group on? Um, yeah, just anything maybe you, you didn't have a chance to share or uh, uh, anything about um, you? Yeah. I don't think I have anything else to add other than for people that may be thinking about contacting me right now. All the company offers is plunger and plunger related, whether it's plunger assisted gas lift, gapple, mm-hmm. whatever folks, you know, term theirs. We haven't gotten into the other artificial lift types. The company yeah. hasn't been around that long, but I I would encourage folks to, you know, take an opportunity to kind of look at are we aligned as a company? You know, do we do we really know what the right way is for us? And like I said, with with contracting with my company, you have access to how I did it, right? How my team did it. Maybe it's the right way for your company. Maybe you, you know, values different things, but at least have some of those conversations. Let's take a look at some wells if you have SCADA. And, you know, I'll be honest and upfront about if I believe I can help or not. Yeah, that's great. Um, I'll throw another thing in there are like questions people should ask each themselves if there's opportunity in their company. And one is if your uh, uh, plunger arrival wait timer is set at an hour, just, you know, at 60 minutes, it, the plunger is probably not going to get there. Um, you know, if you have uh, non-dynamic set points, if you're opening on timer every single time and you're not using some sort of pressures, you're um, allowing your well to be impacted by um, the other wells on, on pad or the line pressure, and you're not allowing that well to breathe the way it wants to breathe. And there are so many good set points to drive plunger reliability and uplift. So um, take a look at a few set points. If you find uh, a lack of consistency in these types of set points that are being used, as well as just yeah, super high numbers on timers. Um, you know, there's 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 going to be some opportunity there. And I think what Jesse offers here is, I think, what we are all kind of looking for, which is a path to how. Um, I think we're all in a state of change, you know, trying to leverage data and trying to figure out the best way to drive change. And it sounds like you've had that experience in your career. So, um, yeah, super thankful to, to have this opportunity to talk with you, Jesse. And and um, yeah, hopefully we have you on here soon after you get your feet wet with a few customers and and uh, come share some, some new insights with us. Okay. Yeah. And I will leave you with, for all the engineers out there, 
just because we're using load factor doesn't mean we're operating properly, right? You can, be, you can be using load factor and be doing the exact opposite with that well, what you need to. So it's all that is so true. goes back to the methodology and, you know, what are we driving for? So I appreciate your time and inviting me on. Yeah. Thanks, Jesse.